This is Adrift NYC, a new show about the waters that lap the shores of New York's five boroughs. Through conversations with historians, marine scientists, and artists, we'll see how the waterways have influenced us, how we influence them, and where we're both headed. In the process, dear listeners, you're going to get ideas for new places to explore on your own. But first, you and I need to get to know each other. So let's start with introductions. Hi, my name is Kathy Boyle Almeida. I've lived in New York City for almost 20 years, and I'm the kind of person that gets excited about doing things I've never done before. Roll that together with my love of the water and the need to get my butt out of my office chair, and bam, this idea popped into my head. Explore the different waterways that touch the shores of New York's five boroughs and create a podcast that introduces each place to New Yorkers like me who might be looking for new places to explore. Here's the plan. I'm going to visit 30 bodies of water that touch one or more of the five boroughs of New York City. Yep, I've mapped out 30 waterways to visit. And each week, I'm going to take you with me to one of these marine environments and share conversations I'm having with historians and scientists about these places and also talented folks who are inspired by these waterways to create incredible things. Okay, it's time for destination number one, Upper New York Bay. This waterway is the perfect perhaps obvious place to start because it's the heart of New York Harbor. If you've ever taken a ferry to Staten Island, the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island, Governor's Island, or even looked south from the top of the Empire State Building or really any tall building, you've seen the upper New York Bay. It's potentially the best known waterway in New York. Still, there are things that will surprise you. By the 1880s, there are, oh gosh, over 750 million oysters in the water around New York City. It's quite remarkable how many whales are offshore. We're going to be able to quantify how many of these animals are coming and going in in and out of the harbor over the next two years. When we come back from a short musical break, you'll hear from each of these folks. Plus, you'll hear how one visit to Upper New York Bay led to the creation of our theme song. Upper New York Bay holds a special place in my heart. For five years, I had an amazing view of the bay when I lived in Jersey City. I learned to sail on the upper bay, and my husband and I got married next to the bay and spent the day cruising around the bay on a gorgeous boat with our family and friends. After all this, I thought I knew a thing or two about the upper New York Bay. But Kara Murphy Schlinting opened my eyes to aspects of the bay's history that I never knew. Kara is an assistant professor in the history department at Queens College, and she's the author of New York Recentered, Building the Metropolis from the Shore, a book that focuses on New York's coastlines and waterways and the small-time, unelected locals who quietly shape the modern city. You're going to love hearing what she has to say, particularly if you've ever wondered if the times we're living in right now might be pivotal moments in the history of our waterways. Hi, Kara. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to get to talk about the harbor. Could you just take us back in time a little bit and describe from what you've studied, like what the bay, the upper New York Bay was like, if we go back to the 1800s, let's say. In the early 1800s, the city is just thinking about what urbanization will look like along the bay. And at this time, New York City is Manhattan Island. And in 1811, the city has just announced that the state appointed commissioners have planned the island's street plan. 
I think we should start here because of the way the commissioners who design this plan imagine the environment. They don't plan any large parks for the island of Manhattan. And they say in their report, so this is, this is their words, it may to many be a matter of surprise that so few vacant spaces have been left, and those so small for the benefit of fresh air and consequent preservation of health. Certainly, if the city of New York was destined to stand on the side of a small stream, such as the Thames, a great number of ample places might be needful. But those large arms of the sea, which embrace Manhattan Island, render its situation in regard to health and pleasure, as well as to the convenience of commerce, particularly uh, felicitous particularly good. <laughs> so what we see is that the people who are planning New York City in the 1800s say, there's so much coastline, we don't need parks. There'll always be fresh air and access to the bay. But they're not anticipating urban growth. And they're not anticipating that in 1825, the Erie Canal will open and will make New York the center of this complex trading hub that is the most important trading hub of North America. And that will render really rapid coastal urban development. And so the 18-teens is this moment of transition. It's still a place that is very marshy. It has urbanization in small-scale patterns across the bay. But within 50 years, it will be transformed and almost unrecognizable to the people who are moving through the upper bay waters. With so much knowledge of history and so much history, if I had to sort of narrow you down and ask you to call out the three things about the Upper New York Bay in terms of history, like what do you think are the most important or the things New Yorkers should really be aware of? Where we started is useful in the idea that the city really booms as a commercial center starting, the Erie Canal is finished in 1825. So the 1830s, 40s, and 50s are a moment of really rapid transformation of what the physical environment of the shore looks like as commerce starts to reign supreme and industrial growth starts to reign supreme. And I think that New Yorkers are aware of this history, but I think that there's an association there that often gets overlooked is that that means that that runs really up against the long ecological history of humans using the bay as a source of raw material. So I'm thinking particularly about the oystermen of the bay, but there's a huge maritime economy of resource extraction in the bay. We think of maybe other New England ports as Boston or the uh, small fishing communities on Long Island as being these really nautical centers of fishing, but New York was as well. Oysters are essential to New York City the way we see hot dog stands in Times Square today was the equivalent would have been in the 19th century in, in oyster stand. By the 1880s, there are, oh gosh, over 750 million oysters in the water around New York City. And shell fishing is a big part of the economy, but that economy will drop by almost over 60% between the 1880s and the early 1900s because of disease due to pollution in the harbor. There's floating garbage. There's unmistakable evidence of sewage bobbing on the waves. There's smells coming from the harbor. It's just, it's stunningly bad. I think we can't even imagine in 2019 how much cleaner the bay is today. It is hard to imagine what you just described when you can look out and it looks almost pristine today. And there's still lots of 
concern about the ecological health of the bay. But by the early 1900s, there's basically no oxygen left in the bay because sewage, trash, chemical deposits are going into the bay. And as these things decompose, they take up oxygen and that removes oxygen from the ecosystem. And so when there's enough pollution, there's no oxygen left for marine life. And so there's corners of the bay that have that are essentially dead in terms of their ecological abilities to maintain life because of the loss of oxygen. But that has changed dramatically. How long did that period last where it was really so bad? It's not until the 1930s and 40s when the city starts to build sewage treatment plants and there starts to be regulation of industrial waste that this will turn a corner. Oh, wow. That's a long time. It is a long time. And so is that turning the corner sort of the point in history that you think is the most critical? Or is there another yet to come that you think is even more? Well, for now, as a historian, looking back, I think that that's really crucial. But there's a second thing on the horizon, which would be this reinvigoration of the waterfront in the 21st century. The way in which New Yorkers, for the first time in almost a hundred years have access to the waterfront. And this is a post-industrial phenomenon. In 2011, Mayor Michael Bloomberg had announced that New York City actually has six boroughs. We were missing one. Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, but also the city's 500 plus miles of waterfront. And he encouraged New Yorkers to think of this space as a single unit, as a ring of public parks and esplanades. And so for 150 years, leisure seekers had really been disconnected from the city shoreline because of industrial might. But in the post-industrial era, the city's rethinking the shoreline, not as a place that's bound up in wood and stone and concrete and buildings and elevated highways, but as a place where there might be leisure again. Partly one of the reasons that I'm doing this podcast is because I feel like so many New Yorkers are so caught up in their day-to-day lives and getting from point A to point B and sometimes over the water. We don't necessarily stop and say, oh, that's really, you know, beautiful and a place that I can go and relax and take a break. Yeah. And there's really great questions to be asked. You know, what makes a waterfront prime for revitalization seems complicated. It's fraught with kind of where capital will come from and private investment. So because it's so much part of the present and unfolding, it looks to me like it could be one of the really important transition periods for the waterfront, but we kind of have to live through it. It's exciting to think that we're living in a potentially pivotal time for the Bay. Thank you so much for sharing your insight, Kara. Before you go, can you tell our listeners how to find your book? My book, it's called New York Recentered, Building the Metropolis from the Shore, and it's at all the places you can buy books online, but hopefully in person as well. Talking with Kara got me thinking about the Bay in ways that I never did before, particularly about those oyster years and what life below the surface is like today. I wanted to know more, and I was told that Dennis Suzowski was the man that I had to speak to. Dennis is a science director at the Hudson River Foundation. If you don't know that organization, you really should check it out. It's a nonprofit that connects the scientific community, policymakers, and the general public with a ton of information and analysis and also educational opportunities. Dennis spoke to me from his downtown Manhattan office where he has an amazing view of the bay and a front row seat to surprising maritime moments like when a humpback whale swam into the bay. Hi, Dennis, and welcome to Adrift NYC. Thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for getting me involved. Dennis, prior to recording, you mentioned that the Upper New York Bay is a favorite of yours. What makes it so special to you? It's a favorite for me because it's you know, at the confluence of, of so many other waterways within New York Harbor. We've got the East River that comes in and, 
and the Hudson River and the Kilvan Cull that leads over into the New Jersey waterways. And uh, the water from the ocean comes through the Verrazano Narrows into the upper bay. So it's kind of a, it's an interesting spot where you've got these different water masses that all mix together. And how are those waters doing these days? We know from a historical perspective that things were really bad at one point, but how are things going now? There's been dramatic improvement in the overall water quality and habitat quality of uh, the Upper Bay over the last 30 to 40 years. You know, major pieces of environmental legislation were passed and various government agencies got to work with cleaning up everything from sewage to contaminants. So if we go back to the early 70s and 80s till now, there's a great deal of, of difference. There's difference in the, the water quality itself. There's more oxygen in the water for fish and things to breathe. The bottom sediments are less contaminated with a whole variety of things. And there has been some restoration activities that have gone on in certain areas, such as behind the Statue of Liberty and along the New Jersey waterway that are sort of teeming with fish now that there's sort of shallow areas put in. Well, that's encouraging to hear. Dennis, what types of marine life and fish are swimming in these waters? It's really an an area that a lot of things swim through here that people don't realize. I don't think they realize that, you know, at least twice a year, you've got massive amounts of striped bass that are moving through here to go upriver to spawn. American shad, two species of sturgeon. Sturgeon are fish that can grow to be, you know, 10 to 14 feet in length and live 75 years. They kind of look like dinosaurs. They're sort of docile creatures, but they're exciting. And uh, we probably most people know them more for producing caviar. And then even in the last two years, you know, we've even seen a humpback whale here in the upper harbor, which uh, was pretty exciting. Yeah, I remember hearing about the whale sighting. Did you see it yourself? I did. I'm Right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm in my office in downtown Manhattan. It has a wonderful view of the upper bay. And Actually, it's kind of a funny story that uh, we had gotten a call from the media to say that they that they thought a whale was spotted near the Statue of Liberty. And you know, we looked out the window, and uh, sure enough, there was one that was swimming around. So we, we actually were, were able to watch it as it, as it moved around, uh, actually on two, to two separate occasions uh, over a, a couple of day period. So we, we got lucky. The bay seems so dangerous for whales with all the big cargo ships and barges and cruise ships. It doesn't seem like a place that a species that big would be drawn to. Well, that's that's a worry. That's a, a real worry about, you know, the whales in the area. And uh, there's some, you know, different groups that are actually, you know, looking at that particular issue. And there's a fair amount of monitoring that's going on offshore that including aerial surveillance that are they're looking at how many whales are offshore. It's quite remarkable how many that there are. And we've actually just funded a project putting uh, some hydrophones at the entrance to the harbor to see uh, indeed how many whales and dolphins, you know, come and go, because we really don't have very much data on that over the years. It's really been, you know, we have to, have to rely on people that said, look, I saw a whale yesterday or I saw a dolphin. Well, we're going to be able to quantify how many of these animals are coming and going in in and out of the harbor over the next two years. I'm going to switch gears a bit from talking about the big forms of marine life in the Bay to a much smaller one, oysters. We've heard about the important role they played in history of the Bay and the city. Can you tell us a little bit about them from a scientific point of view? Back in the turn of the 
20th century, there may have been as much as 50 square miles of bottom of the harbor that actually had oysters in them. And, and now we have virtually none. And no one knows the exact reasons, but the combination of of overfishing them and, and pollution and dredging channels and so forth kind of wiped out a lot of the natural oyster beds. Some of them were in fairly shallow areas. And I think some of the work that, that one of my colleagues here at the foundation is finding in, in the Hudson River, he's finding a native oyster population in the Hudson River that has gone kind of unnoticed over the years because they're, they're in deeper water than people generally thought of. But they're not these huge reefs that once existed, but, uh, you know, small bits of oysters here and there. So they're at various depths. And there's some groups now like the Billion Oyster Project that we've been working with that are putting out not only plots of oysters in various areas where they're you know, they're spawning and sending out uh, larval oysters in the hopes that they'll spawn more populations of them and see if we can indeed bring back this species that seems to be loved by New Yorkers. They seem to have a real love affair with, with oysters. Well, thank you, Dennis. This has been wonderful. If anyone is interested in learning more about the work that you're doing or if there are any programs that you think New Yorkers should know about, is there anything that you want to call out? We have a, a website, HudsonRiver.org, O-R-G, and one of the things that we do here at the foundation is we host a program called the New York, New Jersey Harbor and Estuary Program, and that's uh, one way of participating in uh, you know, the protection and the cleanup of the harbor. But also, I mean, just being on the bay, I do think it's kind of the heart of the city in some respects. And, you know, take a ferry ride over to the Statue of Liberty or just take a, a waterways ferry somewhere else. It's, a, it's spectacular to see and it's uh, invigorating. And it's nice to know that there's lots of stuff below the water as well, surviving very nicely. I completely agree. Thank you for all the work that you're doing, Dennis. I'm going to put a link to your site, HudsonRiver.org, in the show notes so our listeners can easily find you. Okay, dear listeners, now it's time for you to hear just how inspiring the Upper Bay can be and how a visit to the Bay led to the creation of this beautiful music. proud to introduce Mary Jeanstead, who is the composer of that piano composition and a lot more. She's a choral director, a boater, my sister, and clearly an incredibly talented composer and pianist. She kindly agreed to take on my challenge to compose a theme song for this show based on her stay on the Upper New York Bay last year. She and I chatted about that request and how the Bay inspired her to compose this song. Let's take a listen. I'm here with Mary Jeanstead. Mary Jean, can you give me a brief description of your background and kind of what you're doing these days. Hi, Kath. Thanks for inviting me to come to your podcast. I'm excited about it. So yeah, I am currently a retired music teacher after teaching at Miller Place High School for 35 years, which was a wonderful chapter, wonderful career there. I was the choral director, worked with wonderful students for many, many years. That wrapped up last year. And so now I'm enjoying having a little bit of free time to explore some things that maybe I haven't done so much in the past, which is including getting back to playing the piano for just fun. 
So I asked you to participate in this podcast because I knew you had spent some time on the Upper New York Bay and that you are a wonderful musician and that I wanted to ask you to create a piece based on your visit there and sort of if it had inspired you in any way. So can you talk a little bit about how it was when I asked you that, kind of what went through your mind and when you sat down and started to compose kind of what was in your mind and where did you go? Well, first of all, thanks for doing that, because it really was kind of a fun new project for me. You know, as I said, I'm hoping to get back into playing and composing a little bit more just for fun and for things that I want to do. So, yeah, when I started to think about how I feel about being out on the water, the first thing that came to mind was the the feeling of motion and the fluidity of the of the water obviously moving. And so I wanted to choose something that was rhythmic and had a feel of kind of the pulse of the waves. So the piece although short, I think has some different factors that kind of show that it's got a feeling of two. I guess you could say it's kind of more of a six, eight meter, but the feeling then could be two. So one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, that kind of feeling like you're kind of up and over the swells, you know, when it gets to that kind of a feeling out on the water. But in addition to that, there's the element of the chop when it's kind of choppy. And so there's that kind of syncopated rhythm that's dun, 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 dun. That feeling that goes against the one, two, one. And then in the right hand of the piano, I just try to keep that feeling of fluidity by the the motion that you hear and the kind of arpeggiations of the chords in the right hand. So, and then the, the chord progression kind of just moves. You'll hear the, the bass kind of moves down a little bit in, in steps, which kind of makes me feel like there's, again, that sense of motion that you're going to a destination. Mm-hmm. The middle has a minor chord that starts out, and again, it gets more into a feeling of a lyrical two, which feels like maybe just out on the, the rolling sea a little bit more. But the first chord is minor, which makes me feel like maybe there's a little more serenity in that part, or maybe the weather's changing and you have to kind of watch out a little bit. So that little section in the middle goes into two. And then uh, it kind of builds and goes back to the, the slower theme from the beginning. As it's building, I kind of feel like maybe you're picking up speed and maybe you're arriving at your destination. Then the last part maybe is what I was thinking when we came into Liberty Landing Marina, when you've arrived at your destination, there's a sense of calm and we've arrived and, you know, just kind of take in the beauty of the area. So that part slows down a little bit and finishes up. Well, that was a wonderful description. I'm curious to know, like, what's your process for getting there? Did you have those thoughts in your mind or do you sit down at the piano and think of, oh, I like the sound? Like, how, how do you get to what you just described? Right. Well, I did have the idea in mind that I wanted, as I said, to have something that had that sense of rhythmic fluidity in in two. And then I sat down at the piano and I just wanted to pick a happy, bright key because it's something that I enjoy. So it's in F major. It's a bright key, kind of threw in in, with a major chord. I threw in the ninth, which gives a little nice dissonance, I think. Yeah. And I just sat at the piano and I tried to come up with a progression that felt good in my fingers. And uh, I didn't sit down and write anything. I just kind of did it by feel and sound and came up with that initial melody. Terrific. All right, let's listen to it. So let me just ask you while you're sitting there, as you play that, do you feel like you're back on the water? Yeah, this part especially. 
about the feeling of the swells a little bit. Like one, two. Yeah, very nice. So, you know, that's like a kind of the counter yeah, idea. The more staccato. Yeah. Remember my music days. <laughs> well, thanks, Mary Jean. Thanks, Kat. This was great. Okay, everyone. That's it for this week's adventure. If you haven't been to the Upper New York Bay recently, or if you've never been, go. I'll leave some suggestions in the show notes for fun ways to get out on the water when you're there. Thanks to Kara Murphy-Schlinting, Dennis Suzowski, and Mary Jean Stead for taking time to speak with me. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you're so inclined, please leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. And subscribe. It really does help other people discover the show. If you would like to connect with other Adrift NYC listeners or get in touch, follow me on Instagram at AdriftNYC. Thanks for listening. Until next week, make waves, everyone. From the Tsetse Project.